This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property and plenty happening as per normal in the news and lots happening around our region as well. Boy, Manawatu and the wider Manawatu Wanganui very busy with a lot of work happening, a lot of people moving here. There's the likes of the Kiwi Rail Hub, the likes of the Manawatu Gorge Bypass Road, Turatia Wind Farm, money being spent at Food HQ, personnel moving to Linton and Ohakia, plenty going on indeed. And that's really meaning that the market is still very busy. So trying to find rental properties, hard indeed. I just had a lady ring me this morning who calling in a favour, as they often do, um, or at least trying to call in a favour, uh, because the the way that the market is at the moment is you can be an exceptionally good prospective tenant, but there's multiple people trying to rent the property and you may miss out, which is a really unusual situation. Historically, if you're a, let's just say, a really good tenant, a fantastic uh, tenant, uh, companies would be clamouring to put you into a home. Now, that hasn't changed, except now they've got so many to choose from, so many really good tenants to choose from, that it's hard for anyone uh, to get into a property, in, uh, particularly in Palmas North, certainly in Fielding, and absolutely so in Bulls, Martin and Sanson, uh, where there is uh, a rather a short supply of, of properties available. In the meantime, the housing market, sales market, is proving to be rather tricky as well, and we've had a number of situations here where the multiple offers are the norm, and what real estate companies are tending to do is that um, advise their vendors to wait to at least after the first open home, maybe midway through the following week, to look at all offers at that stage. These are for properties that are uh, on the market that aren't necessarily going to auction or tender. And what's happening is uh, real estate companies getting up to and over, in some cases, 10 offers uh, within just about a week of marketing on properties across many price ranges and the prices that are being achieved really are quite phenomenal. If you're thinking of selling a house, it's actually the best time since the end of 2008 uh, to sell your house. I mean, the market here went uh, dropped after the global financial crisis and then moved up again uh, from about November of 2015, and it's really making big moves indeed. You may recall a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about how Palmerston North City, in a year-to-year, when you compare particular month to particular month, I think it was September, could have been October. I might have my uh, my memory can be a bit cloudy, and uh, it was either one of those months was 25% year-on-year increase in median house price, and the other was 30%, or just over actually, it was 32 So really significant changes there as people fight it out to find property. 
So an article that came to my attention from the Stuff Business section under property says, House price expectations hit record high. So National Party leader Judith Collins and Deputy Shane Retty speak on housing prices and a new COVID-19 vaccine. So sort of a dual uh, news article here. We'll just concentrate on the house prices. And it shows that more New Zealanders than ever before believe house prices will keep climbing and that's helped create a seller's market, new ASB research shows. A net 45% of respondents to the latest ASB Housing Confidence Survey, which covers three months to October 2020, expected house prices to rise over the coming 12 months. That's 45%. And that's a marked recovery from the 9% of respondents who in the last survey expected prices to fall in the three months to July. In this quarter, confidence is particularly high amongst respondents in the North Island outside of Auckland, with a net 52% expecting prices to rise. And that would uh, certainly, I'd, I'd argue, would be higher in here in Manawatu as prices keep going up. I mean, even if the market slows, they're still going to be going up just because the increases are uh, so significant. So in October... A net 67% of people expected house prices to keep rising over the coming year, and that's the highest level for any month in the 24-year history of the survey. And that raises the question, are we at the risk of overconfidence? Rightly or wrongly, these results suggest housing is increasingly being perceived as a one-way bet. The Reserve Bank has announced plans to reinstate loan-to-value restrictions early next year. Now, the loan to value ratio I'm not it might slow the market a little the restrictions but not a lot and here's why if investors have properties and markets that are rising or if they have multiple properties and markets that are rising the equity on their homes are rising too now investors tend to use equity already in properties in order to borrow up to 100% so the fact that they are reinstating those loan-to-value ratios doesn't matter too much if a market is rising rapidly. Let's take Palmas North, for example, with 32% in a year. If a loan-to-value ratio is 30%, then in many cases you can use the equity just from one year's property growth to make up that deposit for the loan-to-value ratio. Uh, and so these restrictions uh, might make a difference to some people but not to many people if they're trying to slow things down in terms of investors. It's a, a tricky thing. I mean, you try keeping invest- investors away from an investment that's returning the sort of returns that property does, has done and will continue to do so and it's a pretty hard thing to do. So that was just a little bit from that, uh, from that article there. There's another article in Stuff Business I saw which uh, looks back historically and says, aims to answer this question, which Prime Ministers oversaw the biggest house price increases? And interestingly, Helen Clark and Sir John Key were the post-1990 Prime Ministers who presided over the most rapid increases in house prices during their terms in office. So figures from CoreLogic indicate annualised house price inflation during each of their terms in office was eye-watering 11% for Clark and 9% for Key, both far higher than either inflation or wage growth. The figures were calculated using the CoreLogic Quarterly House Price Index, which is used by the Reserve Bank, but they may understate house price inflation under current Prime Minister Jacinda Ahern as they only go so far as to the end of September. 
So I'd be very surprised if uh, under the current Prime Minister um, she didn't beat those former records, but we'll have to wait and see. But looking back uh, through the 90s, there's been health, annualised house, house growth, house price growth of, uh, of around 8%, for example, under Jim Bolger. Uh, and apart from a time when the country was in a recession, which was under Dame Jenny Shipley, uh, where it was around 1%. So with house prices ending October 20% higher on one measure than at the end of October last year, politicians are playing the blame game. And it's not pretty to watch uh, while people just continue to um, to say that there's ongoing bad policy by successive governments and so forth. Um, and really these bad policies are over a considerable amount of time. Economist Matt Burgess from the New Zealand Initiative Economics Think Tank says both national and Labour governments were to blame. He says it's been a train wreck for 30 years because the consequences of bad policy are longer than the electoral cycle. He said politicians trying to win the next election found it hard to care about policy that would bring in change in five or ten years' time. Focusing on short-term wins using demand levers like the loan-to-value ratios was easier Burgess said the most critical of the housing policy failures of Prime Ministers who are in power for terms of eight or nine years. So it's really interesting to see where um, where things will go there, but suffice to say the article just talks about how it is a long-term issue and it's pretty hard to, to recover this. <clears throat> and many Wellingtonians have found out in the, uh, and this from the Stuff Lifestyle section, it says, Wellingtonians run for the hills in the face of white-hot housing market. So this is talking about how they're leaving uh, the immediate area around Wellington. So it says in the article that it's easy to scoff at Horofenua District Mayor Bernie Wondon's sales pitch for Levin, still close to Wellington and offers a heck of a lot more. But if we consider the two numbers, 50 and 430,000, 50 is the number of minutes it would take you to travel between Levin and the capital in the next few years. And 430000 is the average number of dollars it costs to buy a house in the town. So it's really, really interesting because Wellingtonians are being enticed to move 90 kilometres north and really people are just coming up north from Wellington as things are more affordable. And this article gives an example of people who moved, love the lifestyle and like the environment and they make the point that uh, once the, uh, I guess, once the infrastructure is in place, it will only take 15 minutes. And they mention some of the reasons why people are moving up from Wellington up towards Levin and so forth, a crazy housing market, soaring rents, and COVID-inspired changes. So according to uh, this article, it says, Wellington has become a millionaire's club with entry barred to many and the Hutt Valley is not far behind. It reminds us that Porirua is one of the most expensive places in the country for renters. And they actually said something which I didn't realise here, but there was a 14-home Lower Hutt subdivision recently sold in one day. One day. That's incredible. The number of houses on offer is at a historic low, pushing prices to historic highs. There's also a high number of people working from home at least part of the week. 
uh, with COVID-19 and encouraging many to see the value of staying out of the capital. I had a friend who was working from Palmerston North uh, two days a week and then um, travelling to Wellington for the other, for a block of three days. So there's many people in that area that will be enjoying the cheaper lifestyle in Levin, even Waitariri Beach and Foxton, while commuting to work in Wellington, Parua and the Hutt at least a few days a week. So there is the north of Levin Expressway once that's finished, as well as the top of Transmission Gully and the existing expressway to Otaki. The re- reality is that Levin will be 50 minutes to Wellington on a four-lane highway. So is Levin a good place to invest? Well, this article says that uh, it gives the example of a lady called Lee Morris who's bought a property in Levin. She hops on the Capital Connection at Otaki Station and uh, she's traded her apartment in central Wellington for a new build in the coastal community. In the city, she felt isolated. She likened it to like being in prison. But Otaki Beach, she's found a diverse community, lots of old-fashioned values, and uh, where people talk to you. Now, she bought a land and house package for under 450000 in January of last year. Now it's valued at more than $600,000. So is it worth buying there or thereabouts? You could certainly argue so. And I've been working with investors who have been buying in that area for that reason. Uh, the article goes along uh, in terms of quite a uh, quite a, a long way in terms of the article. It does talk about that a lot of people uh, like the train, like working. They even do a little bit of work on the train, or at least to zone out and watch a bit of uh, TV, given how much streams these days, or some some programs on Netflix, etc. So lots, lots happening there, um, and it's interesting to see how that growth's come north. We've certainly seen over the many years, I remember you could find places in Foxton and so forth uh, for about $80,000. Those days are gone, um, and I guess many of us think, wish we could rewind time a little bit, uh, and uh, that's easy to say in housing. But at the moment, what we're finding, one of the contributors to the shortage is that people aren't selling. So if they're upsizing or downsizing, they're deciding to keep the original home because the values are going up so much. And that's something that's making it hard for first-home buyers to get into the market, of course. But let's look at it, uh, let's flip that round a bit as well to do with renting. I was talking earlier about how, uh, at least in Palmerston North and most of Manutu Wanganui, but let's take Palmerston North, if you did have that 30% growth on the value of your investment properties in one year, that would give you the ability to be able to lend up to 100%. Now, if investors are able to do that to buy property, there's actually a significant number who are looking at new builds. And why is this important? What they're doing is they're taking the equity value in their rented properties or their own home to get a home and land package. That means they're getting a brand new house as a rental to rent out to people, and what that's doing is it's creating new properties in a market where we need new properties. So a great thing that investors can do, in my view, is to get a build land and home packages using the equity that they've already got and providing extra places for people to live. That's something where that people sometimes forget about when they're talking to landlords or investors around the fact that uh, the investment properties are removing people from buying Remember, the overall supply and demand problem here means that there needs to be more houses. So sometimes if the landlords are out there, they're actually creating new properties that's helping to alleviate the situation. 
So that's my little rant about that over. We're going to go to a little bit of music now. We've got some Imagine Dragons with I'm on Top of the World. You're listening to Property Matters on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo, Irurangi, or Ngā Tangata, or Manawatu. I am Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company here today. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, people moving north, etc., and possibly north of Wellington being good places for investors to buy. So now we're going to change uh, tack a little bit. We're going to move over to renting-related matters. There is, of course, the section of the show that I like to call Bad Tenants, Terrible Landlords. And so we'll just highlight a few things here that have happened in uh, the last week. This first article uh, from 
stuff business says that noise and builders' toilets smell like a living smell like a living hell for Auckland tenants. So two tenants and their flatmate were forced to sleep elsewhere due to noise from a house build and the smell of a worker's portable loo on the property. Yuck. Tenants Shane Carson and Lane Reid, along with their flatmate, new landlord Pravin and Kasman planned on building another house at the back of the rental in Glen Eden, West Auckland. However, Carson told the Tenancy Tribunal living at the rental during 11 months of construction was hell. It was meant to be a new start for Carson, she said, after some tumultuous years. As first-time tenants, Carson and Reed were attracted to the property due to its location, size and weekly rent of $440 per week. But Carson described workers banging on their door early in the morning to move their cars so they could access the back site. With large trucks going up and down the driveway right outside her bedroom window, she said she was forced to sleep in the lounge. The tenants were angry as they were renting a place with one parking space and they did not have that, adjudicator Tony Prowse noted. The street the house is on is a busy road. The tenants were unable to park their cars at night on the road because of security concerns. Workers also sang outside Carson's bedroom window and she filmed one interaction asking them to stop. Prowse said Carson was polite and explained to the workers she'd like to stop as she was tired. They agree but as soon as she goes back inside they start again and this happens on three occasions, Prowse said. So what must landlords do when they rent out a house? Well, we'll come to that shortly, but let's, let's continue onwards. There are photographs that show the workmen jeering and laughing at the tenant. A portable loo was also placed outside a bedroom window during hot weather, causing the smell of sewage to permeate through the house. The bedroom's occupant could not open the window and had to sleep elsewhere as a result. Another portable loo was put close to the tenant's kitchen, but was moved after a complaint. Landlord Pravin Kasman told the tribunal he'd asked the workers not to go onto the tenant's land and to be mindful of them. Prowse said she felt Kasman did not take the basic steps to mitigate any interference, such as introducing the tenants to the project manager or explaining to them the work being carried out and its likely impact. I'm left with a clear impression that landlord thought and treated the tenants as an inconvenience to getting the house built on the back. The landlord has taken the view that the cheaper rent compensates the tenant from any convenience. She found the landlord's breaches to the tenants' use and enjoyment of the property, privacy and peace were stressful, annoying, frustrating and constant. And here's the important thing. Kasman was ordered to pay the tenants over $5,500 in damages and compensation. So if you are a landlord, you are looking at a building on the back. Uh, and again, this is a theme that's come through on the show a number of times. If you're renting out a property at a reduced rent to somebody thinking that will allow for either a house being substandard quality or for inconvenience of work being done, it's not the way to do it. What you should be doing is renting it at the full rental amount and then doing something called a temporary rent reduction during a period of inconvenience. So while the house is being built, you might temporarily reduce the rent. Also, you do have to be mindful of impacts that it has on tenants um, and that there is more of a better understanding of what disturbances are going to take place. So that's quite a considerable amount to have to pay the tenants, 5500 and uh, that involves the exemplary damages. So here's another one. The article here from wellington.scoop.nz, Not fit for a dog. Renters criticise Central City flat costing $815 per week. It's got a photograph of it. This report came through from Radio New Zealand. 
So an advertisement for an $815 a week central Wellington flat has sparked an angry reaction from Wellington renters who have described it as not even fit for a dog with the bedrooms more like dungeons. The flat has four bedrooms and one bathroom and is so run down that some have described it as a death trap. Wellington Renters United says this is just one of many examples of how bad the rental situation is in the capital. Some of the comments made by potential renters on the Vic Deals Facebook page where the property was advertised include I can smell the black mould from the photos, burn it down, one said Kornovic have some self-respect, fix the carpet and those loose wires at the very least, this can't fit legal living standards surely. Another comment, to Kornovic and the person who owns this hellhole you should be very ashamed, I wouldn't even let my cat stay a night here let alone a human being. So Kornovic Thorndon told Radio New Zealand in an email that management of the property had only been passed to Kornovic in the last few days. As we've just taken over the property, we're in the process of working through healthy home compliance standards and we'll be taking actions required to ensure the property is compliant within the required timeframes. That's something at least. But Zoe from Renters United told Karen Hay the flat was par for the course in Wellington where cold damp flats could fetch up to $250 per room. She says, rooms like this are incredibly dangerous to tenants' health, not just their bank accounts. It shows just how desperate people are to have a roof over their heads, no matter what the quality that roof is or how expensive it is, just have somewhere to live. The situation is incredibly desperate. So it's pretty, uh, that's some pretty strong words there. And I must say that most situations uh, don't warrant uh, this sort of thing. Um, it's just the media tends to sensationalise those that are particularly bad. There was another article that went to tvnz.co.nz, uh, very similar indeed, effectively quoted the uh, similar people, um, talking about the, the terrible um, conditions and so forth. The interesting thing is there is plenty of redress for tenants, as I mentioned uh, or alluded to in the last uh, article where people won five and a half thousand. Um, so you can do something about this through Tenancy Tribunal. And that led to an article from a blog on realiq.nz. My friend David Faulkner has written saying, are tenants starting to stand for their rights? And this is pretty interesting because he's looked at statistics from tenancy services that show that tenants are standing up for their rights more so than ever before. So he says that usually less than 15% of all tribunal applications are made by tenants. 2017 was just under 12, and 2018, 2019, just under 15% of applications were made by tenants. However, he does say that since the 1st of April through to the 30th of September, tenant applications have increased to 24%, which is really significant in terms of people applying to tribunal for remedy. He says that uh, this could be because proportionately landlord applications have decreased massively due to the COVID lockdown where, where they were unable to apply for things like eviction and uh, in rent-related matters. He does say in his article, though, that uh, one thing that is highlighted in the statistics under tenant applications is that there are still a large number of landlords who simply do not understand their legal responsibilities or they do not care. Bonds not for, are not being lodged is a very common one and failure to maintain the premises is, is another and quiet enjoyment, in other words, um, disturbing tenants, etc., is another one as well. And just under 90% of tenant applications were seeking compensation and exemplary damages in the third quarter. 
So we've got a list here of the most common uh, disputes, top disputes in the applications um, are rent arrears followed by a refund of bond where landlords won't give a bond back, uh, followed by termination and possession um, and then by compensation and damages. So it'll be interesting if we can get more stats there. David uh, makes the comment that it will be good to get more information from Tenancy Tribunal to be able to work as a deterrent for people so they understand what things people are doing wrong in order to improve, um, to learn about the fines people get and to raise the standard of being a landlord in this country. So here's hoping as Tenancy Tribunal can release more of that information. Well, I must say that David had to go to the Official Information Act to get that. Uh, we'll be good to see if changes can be made. So that's all we've got time for this week. It's been lovely having your company here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson, and uh, you can find this wherever all good podcasts are and on npr.nz. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.